Why my high wage didn't mean I had money. Dark plus light equals beauty. Remember this article from my old Substack, now deleted, that I published a year and a half ago entitled A One-Time Client? In case you didn't read it before, here it is. A One-Time Client. In 2013, almost all clients were new clients, as it was the year I began escorting. This particular new client requested that I meet him at a residential address he stated was his home. Sex work is inherently dangerous considering how it's regulated under the law and regarded in society. I understood there would always be risks and didn't give a second thought to the safety of the situation. After all, I entered the industry out of desperation in a foreign country. After working several jobs that all withheld the majority of my wages, I got massively depressed, explored other options, and eventually landed in sex work. It was early afternoon on a sunny Sunday, which were somewhat of a rarity in Scotland, even in the summer months. After I arrived at the location, I took the elevator to the top floor. The structure looked like a mix between an enormous house and a small condo building. I emerged from the elevator on the top floor and saw a single door with the number matching the address provided. The hallway had a secret attic feel to it. When I knocked on the door, an older man in his bathrobe welcomed me and waved me inside. I predicted the home would be small given the tiny entryway, but it was sizable. Upon entry, I felt the space held a notable aura of positivity and warmth. I've always found people's homes emit a certain ambiance. Maybe I'm eccentric, but spaces instantly give me vibes. I imagine it's the same for everyone, but I can't know for sure. This is likely why I've changed dwellings so often. I rarely find spaces that feel good to exist in. Most of them feel wrong or sad. It sounds odd, high maintenance even, but it impacts my ability to get work done and relax. It isn't the end of the world, but it does affect me and the urge to find a place with better vibes once again nags in the back of my mind. I've noticed I'm not consciously aware of what makes a space feel warm, aside from typically having plants, lots of light, and comfy seating. I'm rarely able to create these spaces myself. I find them in public and other people's homes with more ease. I appreciate aesthetics, but often struggle to create them on my own. My parents were never interested in making things look aesthetically pleasing. All the walls were white and none of the furniture matched. Singular overhead lights lit every room and stuff occupied most all the surfaces in every room at all times. They were quite utilitarian probably same as most parents for good reason. A downside of stuff on every surface was that it was difficult to find somewhere to eat that wasn't the floor or your lap. We also always ate while watching TV and rarely at the same time. We didn't eat as a family unless my grandparents came over. Then my mom would delegate a temporary cleaning of the dining room for the occasion. When I inquired why we never ate together, she would be quick to tell me it's easiest considering everyone's erratic schedule. It never made sense to me. It still doesn't. I settled on believing they didn't like to talk. They preferred to have everyone watch TV and not feel as though they had to do any more work. I can't pretend to know what it's like to be married with three kids and full-time jobs. Once inside the older man's home, he gave me a brief tour of the light-filled two-bedroom plus den unit and gave me an envelope. Their master bedroom was enormous and fabulously decorated. I noticed a photo of a woman on the bedside in a remarkable gold frame. He walked me over to the bathroom, showed me the bath he'd drawn for me, and poured me a glass of wine. He had set a robe up on the hook of the door with instructions that I enjoy the bath and come out when I was done. 
I found it sweet and confusing. I had just showered and gotten ready before arriving. Nonetheless, I happily obliged and thanked him. I was instantly stressed out thinking about how long a bath should take during an hour-long appointment. What was a normal amount of time for this? (laughs) I spent around 15 minutes in the bath, watching the clock the entire time. The water was the perfect temperature and filled with lovely smells. When I finally emerged, I made sure to put on the robe and not my clothes. Walking out into the living room, I found him reading in his armchair. Standing up with a smile, he said, All done? Wonderful. I hope it was nice and relaxing for you. I replied, Of course, the water was perfect. Thank you for being so thoughtful. After giving me a big hug, he led me to a small plant-filled patio where two pastries and two cups of tea lay. We sat and chatted about events in the newspaper, our respective day schedules, and other topics. After around half hour of sitting and chatting, he confessed that Sundays were when he became most aware of his loneliness. No matter how exciting life might be from one week to the next, Sundays always held a large cloud of darkness. It had been almost five years since his wife died. On Sundays, they would sleep in, she would treat herself to a bath as he read, and they would retreat to the patio, weather permitting, to talk about sweet nothings. It was the one day a week where they cherished not being alone in the world, sharing their joys and struggles, empathizing with one another. It was their day to cultivate all the love that might have been missing during the week. Hiring a woman to recreate this routine the odd Sunday was the next best thing. He was in a comfortable silence looking out on the clouds, and I looked away from him into the distance. I grappled with tears, forcing them not to shed. Crying would have really ruined this man's attempt at a nice Sunday. Get it together, Sienna. We sat for another ten minutes or so. He thanked me for coming with a warm heart and being a great conversationalist. I never saw him again. Okay, that's the end of the article. So that story happened as I described, except I omitted the sex that happened sometime after bath, but before snack time on the patio. I wasn't just hired to recreate a ritual, I was also hired for sex. An awkward 10 minutes of going through rudimentary sex motions. He was a nice man, but I wrote that story implying he didn't seek sex when he did. I chose not to remember or emphasize that part because, I mean, why would I want to? (laughs) I wanted to believe I was there for the nice ritual part, not the other part. So I started telling myself the lie, the sex didn't actually happen, so it would have been a nicer memory. Why would I want to remember sex I was paid to consent to with someone three times my age that I'd never met before? Not something worthy of mental storage space. Even though he was kind, it wasn't happy fun times, it was dissociate to keep a smile on my face and allow the unwanted sex time. To be honest, it made me uncomfortable, but it didn't break my brain. It was just something gross and awkward I pretended to be into while taking in the surroundings and mentally crafting a story about why he hired me. He was both a nice man, and it was gross and unwanted. (laughs) Both things can be true. Both things were true. I wish I didn't have to do it. I thought I did, and that's why I was there. I wish I could have had the booking without the sex, like in my story. I loved peeking into people's lives. That's the part I was most addicted to as a prostitute. The getting to peek into the lives of people. Got access to private information I shouldn't have been allowed as a total stranger. 
the real ways people felt and acted when no one but me was watching. When they didn't have to impress me because they were paying me to be a fake lover and perverted therapist. Now imagine that little bit of lying happened in my mind for every booking. I bent the truth just a tiny bit every time so I could remember something more pleasant. Can you guess how many lies I've told myself? It's massive self-induced confusion. Perhaps if I had done sex work for a shorter amount of time, it wouldn't have been so soul-destroying. I have a half-baked theory I'm quite fond of that sex work is tolerable and not a big deal most of the time if done with a goal in mind. If there is a reason for allowing the unwanted sex, it doesn't break you mentally. It has an assigned meaning. A man can adore any what or how if he has a why. If you have a why, then it may be no biggie. It may be no biggie if you're just constantly seeing the same 12 generous, respectful men. There are many different hypothetical scenarios in which escorting could be considered more or less soul-destroying than my experience. There not only wasn't a reason for my escorting after the initial financially desperate situation, but there was no goal. Just endless, unwanted sex for no reason in what seemed like a never-ending loop. I started giving away a significant amount of my earnings not long after starting the work because it meant nothing to me. I wasn't planning my future anymore. I had no purpose for the money. I thought other people worked harder and deserved it. I would give it away to whomever. Tens of thousands to strangers in some effort to make myself feel less horrible about how bad the work made me feel. I kept enough to live month to month and not much more. Some way of trying to feel better about it, I guess. I'd give $100 to the cab driver for a 10-minute ride, um, $100 to the guy who made me a sandwich on the way home, $100 to the needy man on the street who was sleeping and didn't even know I left the money. They all worked hard or looked like they needed it, and I didn't care about anything. Giving it to people made me feel a little better, somehow. Ironically, by doing that, I guaranteed that I'd need to do more of the soul-destroying work because I endlessly had nothing to show for it. Oof. I mean, it's humiliating to admit that I acted like that for so many years, but I did. Felt easier to be accepted as someone proudly loving sex work than someone who didn't respect themselves. Honestly, my mentality today still isn't that different. My self-worth issues haven't magically disappeared overnight. I just decided to force myself to try and find a worthwhile meaning again. You know what it is? I think it's a few conversations I had with people I met this year that shared their belief in a meaning. They believe in their chosen meaning so strongly that it piqued my interest. Perhaps my overly empathetic demeanor helped me in this regard. I felt their conviction. I've been borrowing their belief in some sort of hand-me-down fashion in the hopes I convince myself and find my own meaning. These thoughts are deep and dark, I know. They're dark because life is dark. The beauty in life comes from being familiar with the dark and the light. I know that examining the dark is how I'll find out what matters to me. It's how I'll then understand the beauty of the light in comparison. A life without examining the dark feels empty and fake. I want to stand in front of the darkness, look it up and down, ask it why, get upset, cry, have a headache until I understand the dark. Then I get it. The darkness and I know each other. Then... I get to see and appreciate the beauty of the light.
feel the love, smile, cry, laugh. Know the light only exists in any real way to me because I understand the darkness too. Some days, it's a (laughs) toss-up. Quite frequently, recently, I've been happy crying. That expression of emotion always seems like a mindfuck to me. But I guess it's just a version of expression that I'm happy I get to see the dark and the light. Appreciate them both. And find a way to laugh at the absurdity of it all. (laughs) Lots of love, reader. Stay curious.